0: gentlemen, welcome back to an unscheduled Bard Flies episode. Last week we had such a good time talking about the Richard III movies that we decided we wanted to do a separate minisode in the 1995 adaptation with Ian McKellen in the title role. I'm James Smith. And I'm Will Quinn. And this is Minisode 2, Richard III, Hollywood edition. If you're listening to this and haven't listened to our last episode on the play, we highly recommend listening to that one first because this won't make much sense if you haven't. Unless, of course, you're very really familiar with the play and the movie. So, Will, before we get into the meat of talking about the adaptation, I think we should just give a little gloss on the aesthetics of this film and how it departs from the classical medieval setting that the play, obviously, was written for.
1: Yeah, so this this film takes Richard III and sets it during the interwar period in England, and it essentially deals with Richard as That's
0: that to be clear that's the interwar period between World War 1 and World War 2 right
1: Yes correct yeah so it's it's Richard as a proto-fascist and his rise to power in the wake of a bloody war and navigating through all of the nobility of the era. So there's a sort of Wallace Simpson character as an American queen. Uh, there's a whole bunch of relatives. That, you know, everybody's smoking and uh, from cigarette holders and wearing um, you know very ornate modern military uniforms. There's lots of cars and planes and tanks, machine guns are the weapon of choice, and pistols. And it has have very much the feel of. Britain in this period of both luxury and perhaps decadence, uh, nascent decay as you're heading into uh, World War II in some ways. Uh, So that's that's sort of the aesthetic of the film, and, and we'll talk a little bit more about that. But, you know, eventually as Richard rises in power, you know, you start seeing fascist uniforms and iconography that reminds you of the Nazis as Richard seizes power.
0: Yeah, it's got a definite Weimar feel to it and and fall of Weimar Republic into Nazi Germany, right?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So I really love this film. I think it's a very successful adaptation of Shakespeare. And uh, I know that you have similar feelings. And I wanted to ask you, why do you think this one works as an adaptation? The choices that they made here and what goes into successful film adaptation in general, and in Shakespeare in particular.
0: So the the trouble with answering this question is that there's a lot of dimensions to it. And I feel like this movie really succeeds in almost every one of those dimensions. So, Will, you can stop me if I start to belabor anything or if I'm running on. But first of all, I think first and foremost is the fact that aesthetically and filmically, this film feels very very dynamic. And I know that's an overused term, but what I mean by that is, whereas the Laurence Olivier version from 1955, which is also a great film in its own way, I don't say this to cast aspersions in that movie, but that movie has a very, very theatrical feel, as we talked about in the full episode on, on Richard III.
1: Yeah, in the sense that it's a stage yeah, kind it's of It's very depiction. stagey.
0: It's, ve- you know, the, the actors are declaiming lines, and it's great, you know, like the we talked a lot about the Clarence monologue in that movie about the dream. That's an incredible performance by Gielgud, but it's very stage. It's very theatrical. And it's the way it situates the sets. They're like one right next to the other. And it's leaning into that idea. Whereas this movie, you know, the set design is pretty spectacular. The costuming is great. The is very dynamic in the way that it moves around and follows characters and the way that Richard is coming right up to the camera sometimes and speaking directly into the camera and then pulling back to, to feature his conversations with other characters. And also I think in the way that it's portraying what's happening on screen, it's su- really successfully integrating modern, or I guess n- not exactly modern, but modern for the time period that it's showing, right? It's doing a very good job of incorporating like newsreel footage for instance right there's the scene where you see the coronation of Richard and then it cuts to Richard watching his coronation as a newsreel for instance yeah yeah so it, and that's just one example that springs to mind but i think it does a great job of reimagining the events within the play as how they could happen in this different context.
1: Yeah, I think that's very true. The other thing I love about it is the way it preserves and reimagines the original language from Shakespeare's play. It's heavily edited, so there's less of a sort of style of declaiming and soliloquies in the classic Shakespeare performance that you've seen on stage and in some adaptations like I think of uh, Brano has a little bit more of a stagey quality even though those films are fantastic as well but when Brano does Hamlet and it's the uncut four-hour version of it he's very much going for we will do all the lines in this play and this it's very artfully edited but they don't Throw in a whole bunch of modern vernacular. Um,
0: yeah, and to to the degree that there are changes, I, I don't know this for sure, and I did find myself wondering at various points if the interpolations were stuff from other Shakespeare plays, which I know they do. For instance, in the opening monologue, there is a light interpol- <laughs> interpolation from Henry the Sixth, Part Three, I think. But it's so seamless, and you know, whereas I feel like if you watch Shakespeare, you know, if you go to see. Shakespeare in the Park, or if you go to a Shakespeare play, it can take a good half hour, I think, before the rhythm of the speech makes sense to your ear, you know, and and you can really follow what's going on. And I was really amazed watching this again at how quickly and easily you can slide into the world that they create, even though it is, I think, pretty much all still in the poetic language of Shakespeare.
1: Yeah, it definitely almost exclusively is, but this is kind of the amazing thing about it, is the dialogue feels conversational. Like, yes, it does feel ornate at times, and it does feel very much Shakespearean, right? Because it is. Yeah. But it feels conversational. Even in the opening scenes where you see... Henry the 6th and the crown prince at their military headquarters where they're looking at a map and moving around the little sort of soldiers that represent the armies moving around mm-hmm. and they're they're discussing and chatting the actors really embrace sort of the pauses and punctuation and it feels more organic than somebody just declaiming on the stage, which I think is really remarkable. Yeah. And of course, that scene ends with Richard riding a Russian T-34 tank through the study wall of the headquarters and personally executing yeah. the, the crown prince, the prince of Wales, and the king, uh, let which is make, a brilliant
0: thing. Let me make one other observation about this. Well, not about the scene, but about how the language is made to feel more organic and natural. And there's two things. One, I think that this—not that the importance of this is not obvious and self-evident, but it really does drive home the importance of great actors. And I have to say, throughout—I mean, McKellen is incredible, but throughout the film, I feel like all the performances are really pretty uniformly excellent, at least of the the really featured characters, Right. Benning is great. Honestly, Downey Jr. is really good in this movie. <laughs> yeah. McCallan needs no introduction. Broadbent, I, I mean, to what you're talking about with the conversational nature of it, the relationship between Buckingham, who's played by Broadbent, and Richard is really, really nicely developed more through their performance and the way they laugh when they talk. You know, you sort of, you get that feeling of, of co-conspirators. Yes. And that makes the falling out between them, that much more effective, I think. Yeah, yeah. And also the way that Richard Longcrane, who's the director, succeeds in staging these scenes, I think in ways that feel very naturalistic to watch, even though, like, yes, they're wearing these ornate, interwar, formal dress wear. But, you know, like, there's that scene with Annette Benning and Robert Downey Jr. at the beginning where they're talking about how Richard loves us not and, you know, and all that stuff. And you've got Downey Jr. who's wearing... An Indian headdress of the style that the aristocracy of the 30s who were playing at you know American mythology might be wearing, and he's playing with the prince. And and so there's this domestic feel to it that's more intimate just in the way that it's staged and decorated than you would expect from a Shakespeare adaptation. And I think that also makes that kind of organic, like it invites you into the language in a in a different way. I think, than is normal for a Shakespeare adaptation.
1: Yeah, and I think a lot of the little details really underscore the dynamism and fun that they had with this. Uh, And we've talked a little bit, I mentioned the tank going through the wall at the beginning of the film, which is a great moment. But even in small things, like the Downey Jr. character is... Sort of a playboy. He's from America. He's flying to visit his sister, who's the queen. And he meets his end while he's bedding a uh, Pan Am stewardess. And he gets stabbed from underneath the bed, which is one of the crazier things that happens during this play. But there's a sort of we're going to play with the elements of what somebody of this class and of this era might have been doing and we're gonna stage the dialogue and scenes around that instead of just making it people stepping onto stage and being stabbed in some sort of like open way it's like we're gonna we're gonna integrate it into the world that these people live in and it helps that everything is lavishly yeah. decorated uh, uh, and dressed and imagined in a very compelling and period-accurate way, for the most part. Yeah,
0: in a similar vein, there's the fact, for instance, that in the play, Hastings is just another one of these lords, right? He's another one of these magnates who has to be one over to one side or the other, and in, the, in this adaptation, it's changed to that he's the prime minister. He's sort of the civil, non-aristocratic authority who's running the government. And you get the sense that this is sort of a mixed monarchy situation where the king and the elected authorities are jointly sharing power. Probably the king's a little bit more powerful, but the prime minister is still an important figure to be co-opted one way or the other. And, And so that all goes, I think, to to how it is able to successfully build out a world that is both representing, I think, pretty accurately the spirit of Shakespeare's play while adapting it to a new setting.
1: Yeah, I I think, and we should talk about adapting it to this setting of rise of fascism and examining what the movie is trying to say and what could be maybe drawn out of the play that has some relevance for our time, or, or maybe it's vice versa. And, you know, I think, I think that there's an interesting question here of how Richard actually exercises his rise to power, that smacks a little bit of modern politics or at least politics of the era in which the the film is depicting weimar era germany britain in the interwar period when you had the british union of fascists running around and you know efforts to kind of co-opt the king at the time by the nazis in the mid-1930s so there's there's some interesting elements there and there's one scene in particular that stands out to me about how Richard exercises his power, which is when he and Jim Broadbent are at this stadium, and they more or less plan this entire scene where they approach Richard and ask him to be king, and Broadbent and Richard say, okay, well, I'm gonna turn it down at first uh, to appear reluctant, and then you're gonna come back at me and everybody is gonna say, oh, but it has to be you. Otherwise, the country will go to rack and ruin. And they sort of engineer this whole episode brilliantly so that Richard can... Stride onto the stage and appear to be the savior of the nation as Lord Protector and then as King. And it's this brilliantly stage managed moment that ultimately culminates with his coronation and a Lenny Riefenstahl style rally where there's tons of, you know, red banners and black uniforms and the Hitlerian. Yeah, that's that shot
0: feels like it is directly taken from Triumph of the Will, right?
1: Yeah, I, I think it pretty much is. And it's and it's brilliantly done. And I think that it's a fascinating way that they use and reimagine the scene of not just Richard conspiring to murder his rivals, but to manipulate public opinion. And that's why they think they have the Lord Mayor of London appears, and they make references to the people. You know, the people have not discussed Richard, they haven't acclaimed him, and that's why he turns to manipulating them through the theatricality of politics in some ways,
0: of appearing to be the
1: reluctant savior of the nation, which is sometimes how these dictators rise to power, right, or rose to power historically.
0: Yeah, so I had uh, exactly to this point one of my big questions coming out of the movie was does this movie use fascism to tell us something about Richard the 3rd the play or does it use Richard the 3rd the play to tell us something about fascism and maybe more generally about regime breakdown mm. and my initial thought was that the interplay between those two things was primarily that the play could tell us, could have relevance and tell us something about a what feels like a very modern phenomenon. And then I'm, as I'm thinking about it more, I do think that also that modern phenomenon can become a way in for a modern audience to understand and feel that the play is accessible. But I, I think the thing that came out, that really struck me was the way the play succeeds, or excuse me, the movie succeeds in showing this creep <laughs> From the opening, which is the victory in war, and Richard standing at the podium giving a toast, which then becomes the revelation in the bathroom that actually he's going to plot to take the throne. And then over the course of the play, it does a very good, sorry, over the course of the movie, it does a very good job of very gradually introducing these new iconographic elements that are signposts on the way to... The, the fascist Richard that is revealed in that Triumph of the Will scene without doing it all at once. And, you know, I know you had some observations about this. The one that I really tracked onto was the way the costumes mm-hmm. proceed, right? Where at the beginning, at the beginning they're in, you know, they're all wearing, uh, traditional is not the right word, but they're, they're wearing, you know, like the sashes that we associate with the high aristocracy of the late 19th and early 20th century And it feels very Gilded Age and unmotivated. I mean unmotivated in the sense of it's not aiming towards a political agenda other than the preservation of what they've already created. And then over the course of the movie, you see, you know, at some point, Broadbent changes from wearing his fancy dress to putting on what... What basically feels like a black shirt uniform. And then all of a sudden everyone's wearing those uniforms, yes. and they and they you also know? have
1: like badges and sashes that, um so I think Richard Sigil is a red boar. And you start seeing just little patches appear or armbands with that image on it. and you you do have this sense of creeping. A lesser adaptation would've had a whole scene where they show the formation of Richard's political organization and political party or something like that. But in this, it's just very suggestive. And you just realize that within Richard's sphere of influence, of course he's setting up or has set up his own faction in the court. I mean, that's what a political party is, right? And they just very Mm -hmm. subtly show the shift from politics as status quo and as normal and then by the time you see Richard fully ascend to power, he has the whole supporting mechanism in place, and he's been able to dabble with elements of, of setting up a parallel paramilitary universe for himself. He is um, not Catesby, but uh, Tyrell who is the murderer of the two princes in this play and and is basically his henchman you see this element of having the black shirt brown shirt team of thugs supporting richard but it's not done in an overly in your face way it's just happening in the background and you realize of course this guy would be you know he's one of hitler's henchmen you know in the in the end yeah. right uh, but he starts off as a character who's just you do almost have the sense of his own Banality in a way, Tyrrell, because you meet him and I think he's a groom for a horse or maybe a mechanic. Richard meets him and is like, basically, I like the cut of this guy's jib. He seems like a practical man. And he incorporates him. Well, and
0: of course, what he's doing when he meets him is feeding a boar. Right. Right. He's feeding apples to a boar. Right. On that subject, Will, uh, and just going further to your point, the creep of that iconography, the costuming, you know, the badges, all that also is matched by the creep that the that the movie shows of richard's methods mm. right what what becomes politically possible actually and i don't i actually don't know that i got this sense from reading the play though i think just from watching this movie it's clear that it's there but you know you see the creep from richard using the you know the letter of the law to get to clarence and, you know, there's a creep from that to ultimately his effort to get Buckingham to sign off on killing the princes. Mm-hmm. And that for Buckingham is too far. But of course, as, you know, as I think we see with fascist regimes, he's already overcommitted, right? So the, the movie succeeds in using the play to demonstrate how these kinds of governments, you know, are able to continually push the boundaries and push the boundaries without Ever doing one thing that feels truly beyond the pale because of how far they've already pushed the boundaries, right? And then suddenly Buckingham finds himself in, sort of in the same place as the audience, I think, mm. where he suddenly realizes, oh, oh my God, this is way more serious than I thought I was signing up for.
1: Yeah, and I think Richard's character in that moment is great because he points out to Buckingham and the audience implicitly that, you know, it's, it's, it's too late to develop a conscience now. Like, we're solidly down this path and, you know, you committed to go with me and and this is exactly where we're headed, which of course is the bargain that the Wehrmacht, you know, the German military during Hitler's rise to power essentially made and that many industrialists did as well, right, is that Hitler was not necessarily their first choice. They would have preferred somebody from like the Prussian aristocracy to rearm Germany and make it a respected power, you know, maybe restore the Kaiser something like that. but they thought, that, they thought that Hitler was somebody who could be an expedient force for them to benefit in various ways. And it turns out, just as the Wehrmacht probably realized a little bit too late that they were doomed because of Hitler's actions and increasingly rash behavior uh, in the lead up and then during the war, Buckingham realizes that... He's empowered Richard, and Richard is actually a monster, and he's behaving in incredibly destructive and impulsive ways. But what's interesting, James, is that Buckingham, the way they frame that scene is Richard asks Buckingham to kill the princes. Buckingham asks basically to leave. Uh, He's like, I need to to think about it, more or less, is the vibe that you get from the scene. And Buckingham comes back in, and the implication is that he's willing to do it if he gets the earldom, which I think is a brilliant way of taking the play, and framing it in the way that I was just talking about in the context of the rise of fascism and so forth is that people have their qualms, but even to a shockingly late period, if the benefit is laid out to them, they're willing to go along with it for a variety of reasons. You know, and it doesn't necessarily have to involve the farthest extremes of talking about the Third Reich or anything. I think it's just a a tendency that people have sometimes in politics and that it can be still present when you're being asked to do truly appalling things, I mean the the murder of, um, they only show the murder of one of the princes, but obviously both of them are are killed. The murder by Tyrrell of the princes is one of the more, most disturbing parts of the film. Actually, you know yeah. he takes what is it like a red silk pillowcase and presses it yeah. over the boy's head the boy probably 8 or 9 and you like see his features distort and his mouth gasp for air as he's being smothered and it's just a, a horrific a horrific image and and it's just it's played very very well but you realize buckingham perhaps if he had gotten that earldom for hereford he would have gone along with it and engineered it himself you know in in some way so that's kind of an interesting Th- thing this
0: was and this was an interesting moment i think also because and I don't remember if this is the way it actually proceeds directly in the play, but Richard asks Buckingham basically to sign off on what he wants to do. Mm-hmm. Buckingham says, "I need to think about it. Let me get back to you on that." <laughs> <laughs> Leaves. And then Richard just goes ahead and calls over Tyrol and tells him to do it. right? Buckingham is giving is part of what gives Richard a veneer of respectability, right? And then this becomes the moment where Richard decides, I don't need that anymore. I can act on my own whims. And then that seems to lead into the following scene, where Buckingham comes back and says, I claim the things you promised me. And Richard says, I'm not in the giving vein today, I think is the line. (laughs) (laughs) And that's what alienates Buckingham. But at that point, Richard seems to think that he's beyond needing Buckingham. Yes. And, and I guess the, the thing that it, that it brought into my mind was the question of like, well, why is he asking Buckingham at all? And I think, uh, I'm, I'm sort of going out on a limb here, and you can tell me if you disagree, but it, it, to me, it feels like maybe at that point... Maybe we need to see the scene so we realize that this is the point at which Richard has decided that he is truly beyond the law.
1: Well, to me, it's clear that Richard has always felt that he is beyond the law in various ways. Even, he, he wants the veneer of respectability and the law that the law can provide, right? But he doesn't actually care one whit about it in anything but an expedient sense, basically. And I think Buckingham is a co-conspirator who helps him maybe manage his network of allies and is sort of the person who can frame what he's doing in a more politically palatable way, which is part of what I think the the brilliant scene where he goes in to Richard before Richard is made king, where they're trying to engineer public acclamation for him, and he hands him a prayer book and then it's a novel and he removes the cover of the novel. Yeah, it's and an you know has, shot. and has McKellen, you know, or has Richard go back out there and pretend that he's been earnestly a prayer and that the people are disturbing him? you know, from his holy meditations, and he goes back out. But there's this element of Broadbent is the one who helps him engineer this facade of legitimacy, whereas Tyrell is a guy with basically no real consequence, other than the fact that he's a bloodthirsty thug on command, essentially. And he's always sort of looming in the background as Richard's primary henchmen. So I think when you when you lose Buckingham and it's just the henchmen, that's not a particularly good look for Richard, and it starts to alienate the remaining people that he might want to depend or lean on
0: yeah. for support. One note I want to make about, uh, about Tyrrell, Will, <laughs> just in terms of talking about our Shakespeare expanded universe, the guy who plays Tyrrell is the guy who plays Richard of York in The Hollow Crown season two which is the one covering the Henry the film. Huh. Not Richard Plantagenet who will become Richard the Third, but that character's father, the one who kicks off the whole debacle. So, and just that, that was just that was just a funny observation. I was like, "Oh wow, I know who this guy is." And
1: hilariously, you know, you mentioned on our last podcast from the Olivier adaptation, Cecil Hardwick, who is in the the Olivier version, his son is actually in this Richard the Third. And he I believe is playing I believe he's playing Stanley actually. So the the, the guy who Oh really yeah, which is kind of hilarious. Okay, I didn't realize and, that and also the Stanley character, it's brilliant and this is the attention to detail that this film goes to, he is wearing an RAF uniform, a Royal Air Force uniform, and in the final climactic battle, there are planes that start bombing Richard's army, and Richard looks up to the sky and says, Stanley, and it's this kind of brilliant detail of Richard losing these core elements of power and military force that he needs to maintain control. Uh, And it's also worth noting, at least from a military perspective, the final battle, is just a chaotic, like, route, and you realize, in some ways, that, and this is sort of different than the play. I think Richard is depicted at, great at capturing the throne through machinations and intrigue. Not so good on the battlefield. In this movie, they basically get surprised. You know, they, they're surprised and overrun almost immediately. Uh, the stage direction of the battle is fantastic, not because it's realistic. In any way, it's just kind of a jumble of of chaos, but not in exactly the chaos that you might imagine and and that actually happens in the world. It's more just like they're totally unprepared and just in in very, very bad shape uh, almost immediately, which is striking. And of course, the attack begins, too, when Richard's giving... A not particularly inspirational speech to his officers. <laughs> extremely
0: uninspiring speech, I would say.
1: Yeah, which is basically like, don't let the invading armies come in. They will, you know, murder your children and rape your wives and steal your land. And they're a bunch of weaklings. Like, if we're going to be beaten, let men beat us, you know? And the guys all seem to be chortling, but then immediately bombs start hitting the train car they're in and everything pretty much goes yeah. to hell.
0: And I, th- I think this movie, another aspect of that, Will, of, that, of showing how Richard manages to lose a coalition that could allow him to win is that you see him in that in what in the play is a totally bizarre scene of him trying to convince Queen Elizabeth to try to convince her daughter to marry him Mm. and you see that scene and then almost immediately after not immediately but very shortly thereafter you see that she's instead decided to ally with and have her daughter marry Richmond. And you see the wedding, and, it, and it, all, it sort of reverses the way the events play out in the play. And so you see Stanley has gone over to Richmond. And Stanley, I think, was always, at least as presented in this adaptation, has always really been flirting with Richmond. Mm-hmm. But also, you know, the Woodville power base has also gone over to Richmond and whatever, however much that's been reduced by Richard's actions, when combined with Richmond, it's enough to, you know, to make his overthrow pretty easy.
1: Yeah, I think this is a fantastic film, and it's available on Amazon Prime streaming now. So I, I highly oh recommend, yes, that was
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was uh, that was to be clear. The reason we decided to do this was because we discovered that the this adaptation came available on Amazon Prime, basically coincident with when we released the Richard the third play podcast
1: yeah we we think it's safe to say we both love this film and highly recommend while you're stuck in quarantine uh or whenever you listen to this podcast that you go and cue this up it's it's a fantastic movie and it's a great way to experience shakespeare uh and enjoy him in the modern
0: day before we finish will favorite scene in this movie
1: I do love the opening scene. The first twenty five minutes of this film or twenty minutes of this film are basically perfect, but I love the I love the scene where Richard is making the speech at the victory banquet and then ends up in the men's room at the urinal and then cues in and the audience on the conspiracy. I just think that's brilliantly blocked and staged, and the camera work is fantastic, using the mirrors and you know, Richard checking yeah. his teeth and McKellen just like owns the role from the jump. I love that. That's maybe the second uh, scene in the film, and it's it's great. That's my favorite.
0: I mean, it would be hard. It's hard to top that scene, for sure. I did love the scene immediately after the scene where he is talking to Lady Anne, mm. right? Like, So he's in the mortuary with her, looking at the body of her dead husband, and they have this, you know, that very long discussion in the play where he's trying to get her to marry him, and then he leaves, and there's, and he's walking through the the hallways outside this morgue, talking to the audience as he goes about this effort. And there's such this unconstrained glee mm. at what he's succeeded in doing, and it's so deliciously vile. <laughs> I really, and it, and it really, I don't know. I was probably keying in it also, on it also because I thought that it really went to that theme we were talking about last week about his desire for domination and how and like how he's turned on by it yeah Uh, i thought it was an amazing moment that really brought out a theme that we saw in the play and made it alive in a way that it might not be on the yeah absolutely
1: yeah great great scene great movie great play and that's our show tune in next time to hear a snark about a play of questionable provenance that no one knows about edward the third thanks for tuning in to bard flies If you like the show, please subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, or Stitcher, share the show with your friends, and give us a glowing five-star review. You can also follow us at Bardflies on Twitter, and drop us a line at bardfliespodcast at gmail.com.